0: We are This is Sex Love Psychedelics and I'm your host Dr. Cat bringing you psycho sexual conversations that will leave you intellectually turned on and hungry for more Hey lovers I get a lot of questions for new moms and moms-to-be who are curious about entheogens. And I have heard of individuals who've been pregnant during ayahuasca, both in indigenous cultures as well as not. <laughs> and it got me curious about this. So my guest today, Michaela De La Maico, has been a leading voice in this space connecting plant medicine for fertility, motherhood, and womb health. She's got an incredible guide that I suggest you take a look at. It includes a lot of the really limited research on the topic, as well as questions of inquiry to support you in your own intuitive decisions about you and your body and your reproduction. What I think is so important about this conversation today is, yes, we're talking about psychedelics, but we're also talking about the whole ethos around motherhood and the cultural messages that can contribute to some of the challenges that we see mothers experience every single day, from shame and blame to, you know, isolation and separate, separateness from, not only from community, but also from the identity of who you were as a person or the way that your life was before or the way that your body was before. So consider how many contextual factors are at play for an individual, for a mother who might be experiencing challenges around their pregnancy or, or thereafter, or um, even just the whole process of, of, of birth, the whole transition that might lead someone to Think about psychedelics as a part of their process, as a part of their initiation, as a part of their um, health management. Now, as a reminder, this is all for informational purposes only, so please consult your healthcare provider before pursuing any of the products or practices that we discuss. I do not believe that psychedelics are for everyone, so please do the preparation and the work necessary to care for yourself as an individual. Now, before we get to Michaela, my Sensual Awakening 14-day course is now on sale right now for the holidays. This is an initiation into the sensual lifestyle, learning about how to access your sensuality, what may be blocking you from it, and how to embody your choice that is comprised of not just practicality, but of desire and of pleasure. This is a no bullshit program that cuts to the heart of the how to do, and it's really fun. (laughs) So get it while it's on sale and start your new year in a sensual intention. Link is in the bio, so check it out. Now to Michaela de La Mico. Michaela is a mother, an entheogen educator, a womb care practitioner and acts as a community ceremony facilitator. Her platform, Mama de Mico, is a creative space at a intersection of medicine woman, psychedelic mother and sacred hoe, where she provides incredible resources and tools on entheogens and plant medicine for all stages of reproductive health. She comes from a blended ancestry, including Southern Italy, the Caribbean, and the deserts and mountains of Mexico, and draws upon the knowledge and teachings on the ancestral lineage and healing. Thank you so much for joining me today, Michaela. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I first met Michaela at the Oakland psychedelic conference where we both spoke at, and then I got to be on stage with her on a panel about sex and psychedelics. And I genuinely, I, I sung her praises as soon as she was on the video. But you are an incredible influence of this education of the the really necessary information um, that you know. I believe. All women need to know, especially around their health. I, I believe all genders really need to know um, because you know many there's there's many gender identities who have womb spaces, and there's also everyone who can support and love on the wombs. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think there is a general hesitancy to talk around medications and pregnancy or breastfeeding, and with good reason, you know, to avoid harm or complications to birth. And it was when I was in ketamine-assisted therapy training years ago that there was research being conducted on breastfeeding mothers and ketamine for postpartum depression. And that really sparked this, this opening in my mind and heart of like, yeah, how can we take care of our mamas? Like we need to give them better resources than SSRIs, which I think is the leading, you know, the most commonly um, prescribed medication. So how can we be there for them? How can we help them? You know, there's so many, um, so many mamas who are struggling with postpartum depression or trauma as a result of birth or, and, and it doesn't, we need something that that helps with, you know, doesn't impact. The child in an unhealthy way or the mother. So that's where I want to start with a conversation with you. There's a trend of microdosing moms. And I really want to pull back the curtain on this and talk about how plant medicines can, and entheogens can support our women across the stages of pregnancy.
1: Thank you. Um, So as I'm kind of uh, listening to the musing and understanding what the question is here is what benefits are we seeing? Um, what What is guiding people to even want to ingest these? Why don't people want to SSRIs? Um, what harms are possible? Um, what have we actually been seeing in people's lived experiences? Um, what positive benefit are we seeing from mothers birthing people and their children? um and why is this information missing and where is it if it's anywhere and um so truly the state of birthing in the west um is a very incomplete and cold system um that does little to respect the wombs of of people and so what we see in the postpartum period um is often the consequence of that extractive process (laughs) um there's extraction of the earth there's extraction of the land there's extraction of resources and so that same attitude um looks at women's and birthing people's bodies and says like how can I extract that baby out of you and um that can feel like a very violating experience and not consensual or sensual. Um, There is an unfortunate um, prevalence of over-medication and that's particular to European and Western women are routinely over-medicated and um, their births are often like very much over-medicated like, overwhelmed by observation, right? Um, because of cultural narratives and Black, Indigenous people and women, um, people of color, tend to be under medicated and undercared for because of um, pseudoscientific belief systems around pain thresholds and, um, you know, being primitive and things. So, The state that a lot of people live in um, when they come into the birth space is already so deeply augmented by our perceptions of what pregnancy is and how to treat it and if it's a malady or not. And when we're in the birth room, then... Those systems um, of extracting the child out of the person's body by whatever means necessary, whether that's to under-medicate or over-medicate, obstetric violence, um, things going not as planned, people's rights not being, um, you know, people's rights not being respected and also their word and their desires not being respected And all of that then comes screeching to this incredible halt now that the baby is here and now we have what to hold us. Now we have what to tell our body that we've done a beautiful thing. Now we have what many hands to help us tend to our homes and help us tend to the world all around us so that we can slow down and rest and be in the quarantena. Um, there is such a lack in the postpartum care that there is deep sadness and stress. So um, it's hard to imagine that just adding mushrooms or ketamine to the postpartum experience would fix everything without considering the other many factors which lead to a postpartum experience that feels whole and that feels supported And that feels complete. So I just want to name that um, entheogens are not some panacea that gets applied into whatever circumstances possible and eventually will just make everything better by themselves. Um, But instead, like they are a part of a, and belong inside of um, whole frameworks of um, restoration and, Whole frameworks of um, reconciliation and whole systems of reparations for mothers and people who just
0: gave birth. So it's really taking a look at the systemic trauma that perpetuates this feeling of unsafety in the air around us. Like the system of what I mean here is the system of birth, the business of birth.
1: Yeah, that's a great documentary, if anyone would like to take a look at that. Um, The Business of Being Born is a really wonderful documentary put together by Ricky Lake, and I feel really like excavates some of these ideas of Western birth. And um, I think what's really important, parallel here, and the reason I study and create education within mushroom consciousness is that we're watching a very similar changing of hands As we saw in traditional midwifery at the turn of the 20th century, because uh, largely the awareness, understanding, study, and caretaking of birth belong to the hands of lineage midwives um, and and lay people who understand plants and understand um, bodies by caretaking them for many generations. And um, as the modernity of western medicine um you know wanted to become the the main character of all things health and well-being and birth being a big part of that um the like there was such an incredible campaign to remove the right and the privilege of those people to be able to serve their communities by way of like requiring Documentation and licensure, and all of these other things, in order to practice. And those people were largely written out of the conversation. And the opportunities to support women in giving birth landed largely in the hands of people that didn't know anything about birth. So, you know, we're actually really watching this parallel happen in our entheogenic communities. And um, I think that's, I just want to leave that as a little dog ear, just looking at how folk practices that belong to people um shift over to um belong to industry over time and that's what the psychedelic uh, renaissance quote-unquote is like really kind of showing us right now so um to the point of you know the other questions that i laid forward for example like the safety stuff and the benefits stuff and where is the information and is there any information? Um when I started um practicing and when I started really caring towards the mothers and entheogen space, there was very, very, very little information. Um we have cultural knowledge and cultural frameworks and I set um, my my sites to compiling that information, which really birthed the entheogenic Earth Medicine Assisted Motherhood Guide, which is yeah, that 52-page document that is essentially kind of pulling all of those tiny threads together into this tapestry of like, here are all the medicines that we know come from Earth, and here's its relationship to like the female body as a gestational aid and as a support system during birth and postpartum. And weaving what we have in the cultural knowledge with what we have in the scientific knowledge which is extremely limited and um that was three years ago and so much has come up from that like I'm so happy to see these organizations come together and this you know as much as I dislike the trend of the microdosing mom um I'm happy that it's now becoming more normalized than it's ever been and that now we can move past the question of is it safe into what are the benefits and how are people coming into greater senses of well-being because of their relationships with entheogenic plants and fungi so you know um as much as i just love the trope of the microdosing mom um it was an entryway for so many people they could yeah. The, the American public could microdose the information that moms were dosing. So um, <laughs> now we could potentially move into closer to what the reality is, which is mothers are leaders in the psychedelic field. Mothers are cultivators. Mothers are ceremonialists. Mothers are birthing children with mushrooms in their systems. Uh, they have mushrooms in their breast milk and their children are drinking that. And, you know, like it, it's kind of the rabbit hole that uh, we need people to actually drop into. So I'm I'm glad that the American public could microdose the idea that mothers dose because now we can have the real conversation, which is how deep does a mother's relationship go? And what is the responsibility that mothers have in the psychedelic space? Mm -hmm. And I love to discuss that.
0: Yeah. Amazing. I want to discuss that too. And when we're talking about, you're saying that it's showing up in the breast milk. And I know for, you know, I know from the research with ketamine that I've studied under, um, it shows up very little. And so as you can share about the plant medicines as that's showing up and is this toxic per se to the development of the child um, in breastfeeding or in uh, gestation, can you perhaps expand on that?
1: Absolutely. Um, I think I've done like a hundred podcasts, um, detailing this and I am, I'm happy to share it with your audience. And I'm happy to also share that this one experiment that happened, um, is not the definite and end of our knowing. This is, um, what we are later going to showcase, um, to the world, like what, what is the impact? What is, what is the impact on, on gestating babies? And what is the impact on breastfeeding kids? And what are the mushroom babies and the LSD babies and the ayahuasca babies looking like in, in <laughs> our world? Because they're here and they're like five and six years old. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I look forward to asking them about <laughs> who they are and what they're like and, and how they think their brain functions. But I um, I will say that the pass through um at least gestationally of psilocybin and other entheogens is really like carefully um filtered by the placental tissue which is obvious and i think for anyone who studies the womb and knows anything about midwifery and the genius of the body it's really the placenta's um role and part of the incredible intelligence that it has to let things in and pull things out and move things through. And, um, you know, I think that's really meaningful and important. And I would also just like to maybe like, drop the seat of, you know, where did we get kind of these cultural frameworks around or these ideas and propagandas around like, you know, mothers harming children um, with um with drugs in their system and let's look at the drug war and like let's look at what that the narrative base proposed by the drug war really makes us feel like when we're thinking about mothers eating mushrooms and are we placing um sensationalism on top of that and um I think that's important to distinguish because a lot of mothers that are making this choice do so um with the fear that they're putting the, themselves and their families' lives at great risk, not just because of potential for, you know, augmenting the pregnancy in any way that might be perceived as harmful, but also at like, you know, how am I going to be looked at what stigmas are now upon me for being a selfish mom or a bad mom, or how could you even do that? And by the United States government, like perceiving or making this grounds for wanting to remove children from mothers' care. So just a shout out to all the moms that like have been listening to their intuition and feel really called to take this step and also are doing so with, um, some friction, right? Because not everyone is like, you know, with open arms about people's decision-making, especially while pregnant. So um, the C. experiment that uh, was done on pregnant rats tells us a lot about um, the concentrations of psilocin in the mother's body versus the concentration in the fetus. So yes, it does pass through. We know that the babies are being bathed in whatever the mom is having, and that includes psilocybin and psilocybin. So, um, we just kind of need to like get over the idea that, um, you know, we're never going to perfectly time, like, you know, um, especially with with breastfeeding like this pump and dump method of oh it's in this for 24 hours and so you should just like dump your milk out and you know um there are some great charts and resources to show what the half-life is and where it lives in the breast milk and things but I will just say this with like the utmost clarity that I possibly can if you're afraid that it's ever going to come in contact with your child like maybe it's better to maybe there's a different choice or maybe there's an inquiry that that we can that we can look at because um, it's never going to be perfect you're never going to perfectly like time that breastfeeding and you might just fill yourself with so much paranoia that is it even worth it (laughs) at the end of the day? Um, Because you're going to be looking at your watch and trying to do it perfect and just right. And um, you might still get psilocybin into your child. And so I think the question is, is how much do we trust psilocybin as a substance? And I love to get into that because you mentioned earlier about toxicity. Is psilocybin a toxic agent? And at what level does it become toxic? And like, what does toxicity look like? And um, have we observed psilocybin toxicity in anyone at this point? So um, some of the only ways that we really understand toxicity, at least like in the science, is um, the LD50 test. And, you know, they've done these studies um, to see how much of a certain substance will need to be um present in order to like kill half a population of the subjects which is a really terrible um experiment but it tells us you know what is um what it gives us some kind of measurement of toxicity and so um that this has been done for all of the classic entheogens from lsd to psilocybin and thc and um and even mescaline which um I think is so valuable and important because um, people deserve to know um, how these things stack up against very regularly um, consumed items like sugar and caffeine and nicotine and and aspirin and ibuprofen and these, you know, acetaminophen and all these other things and morphine that are so regularly distributed to pregnant at birth and breastfeeding mothers. So I think morphine is a really interesting one because it's in the epidural. So um, we have examples and I've done presentations on the presence of entheogens and their place within the birth world and obstetric practice, because we use entheogenic plants and fungus in obstetrics, there is a lineage and a history of not only traditional midwives using ergot fungus, for example, to progress all labor, but also um, ergotramine um, as a way to stop uterine hemorrhage and ergotamine for migraines, which is a derivative um, of ergot so it's it's cool to see how things like belladonna which is a poisonous plant um, being you know pulled uh, what's being pulled from belladonna scopalamine which is then what's used in night in um, in the twilight sleep that a lot of women were induced into, um, you know, for about 13 years um, in early obstetrics. So it's like, it's really, really cool. Because when you just kind of look at the legacy of midwifery, there's all kinds of entheogens and poisonous plants being used for all of their medicinal properties. And the question is, who has the right and the privilege to use those And that's, that's mostly the Mm -hmm. question.
0: And I'm going to include that link of your talk because it was really well organized and people can see the, the, the visuals of that. What I also hear you say is, is, you know, we hear morphine and we hear poppy and we hear uh, belladonna and we hear, hear, um, you know, ergot and LSD, the plants And then the medical words that we know of these, you know, these derivatives, and yet there's so much stigma on one and acceptability of another in the mainstream world. And so to hear the relationships between these Mm
1: -hmm. can
0: help anchor people into knowing, you know, a a wider scope of what's happening in in our culture here.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, we wouldn't have pharmaceuticals without folk medicine. Like we're watching <laughs> psilocybin get synthesized out of, you know, and and there's a place to find that and it's in fruiting body mushrooms. So, you know, it it's really, it's really cool. We wouldn't have, yeah, most of our pharmaceuticals without um some kind of herbal um ancestor. And a lot of them have just been like denatured and then like compounded for their benefit and effect. But the only thing that, you know, I I really like to mention is just like we're losing that um that, that symphony of, you know, that entourage effect that people say is like all of the other, um, micronutrients and, um, other plant constituents and fungus constituents that give, um, the, you know, the, the background for and modulate the benefits. So, you know, when I, um, when I was kind of proposing research around, um, because I, I really wanted to kind of answer these questions that we're dealing with right now is what are the benefits? Is there a possibility to do a study with postpartum mothers, for example, um, working with psilocybin? and? What might that look like? And is there an ethical concern um, because of the breastfeeding? And would science be at all willing to tackle that with informed consent? I don't know. So I've drafted like proposals and I've brought them to researchers and said, hey, can we study psilocybin and postpartum mothers? And, you know, with all of those concerns aside, mostly the issue um, that they were expressing is that they needed to get consistent results. And it's hard to do that with fruiting body mushrooms because there's like a variety of different like outcomes and so much variability with mushrooms. So they were suggesting that we would need a synthetic psilocybin um, pill to dose these moms with in order to get accurate studies. So you know that was something that obviously didn't feel right because um, there is that slippery slope of also like removing people from the the earth in order to get that healing and a company could just say hey like we were this study we we're gonna fund the study and we're gonna be like the salespeople of that product at the back end so you know we needed to do something different and i i really kind of have been in conversation with a lot of mothers for years and supporting them through their postpartum time and connecting with them and helping them connect with mushroom. And um, that looks like sitting together in ceremony that looks like doing postpartum care. That looks like just doing visitations or talks on the phone and asking them about what they've been experiencing and staying with them for a long time and
0: um, being in community with. And that's medicine too in and of itself that so many moms don't have community. They feel isolated, you know, in that role, yeah. Yeah, and um, the benefits have certainly showed
1: themselves through that storytelling. Storytelling is like the medium through which mothers share all information from recipes to how to soothe your crying baby to what benefits they received from eating mushrooms and other entheogens postpartum. And, you know, um, after kind of getting to work on some of this stuff, I was thinking, could it be an easier way to what would be the easiest way to compile this information? Because obviously we're here like mothers are eating mushrooms at all points in the gestational experience. And I was really curious, um, what have been and the range of benefits, what have been the positive outcomes? And so, um, me and James Fadiman and another amazing um, doula postpartum doula slash like lay midwife person named Naomi uh, Tomlinson or Tolson. uh, She's in the UK put together a survey and we just asked mothers what their experiences have been. And we have 300 submissions now. And the goal is 500 submissions so that I can put together a body of work that really looks like, quite a quite a range and and we can look at and see all of that um together as a community and and here um not only that is that it was safe but also that it brought extreme wellness and like happiness to whole family systems so you know um we haven't had that and i'm going to share that with the community for mothers day 2024 so i'm really grateful to be giving that gift and It's been some time since I've put out a big piece of research like this. So, you know, um, it's in my heart to just show the world what so many indigenous people already have known, um, that entheogens and all of these plants um, and mushrooms and, you know, psychedelics are for families and belong with families, benefit families and can be a part of community and not only in that direction, but in the direction that like mothers and children and families also belong in the psychedelic community and like deserve to be in leadership. And, um, what is the point of doing all of this if we don't benefit the next generations and teach them and show them how to be, um, it's just a bunch of adults with a lot of money trying to make a book. And we're not really thinking about the impact on the earth, the impact on children, the impact on, um, yeah, the, like our very soul, you know? So for everyone listening, who's like a mom, um, we all have a really important role to play in this entheogenic movement. And um, it's just going to be really incredible watching so many people kind of move into this with a little bit more confidence and a little bit more assuredness that I didn't hurt my child by making this decision that felt really right for me. And that we can like, bow to each other and say um, thank you for doing this risky thing, at least some of us in these first few generations of taking these actions because we did so just on like good faith and um, like our intuition. And also some of us had the opportunity to learn from elders, which I did. So um, I think that's an important thing that mothers and families deserve to have is just that sense of confidence and knowing that, they're, they're actually doing maybe a good thing for their families.
0: Yeah. There's already so much, you you spoke to this earlier, stigma and shame around moms, and that just perpetuates the challenges. And so really bringing this to light is important. We're going to include your link to that survey in our show notes and really encouraging, um, those who feel called to share. Um, I want to see this, see this happen. You, you also brought up the you've brought up a couple of times ancestral indigenous um, ritual or indigenous um, influence and you know tying that back to the roots and if we were to dive into that a little bit more um, perhaps highlight some of the historical practices and wisdom that perhaps some of the indigenous or some of the um, mesoamerican civilizations used um, or passed down in regards to using entheogens for fertility or for uh, motherhood or what that looked like?
1: Sure. Um, So there's a couple of different
0: medicines
1: that I am aware of are part of um, the birthing continuum um, from the global South. And I, um, I think it's also, I just really want to reiterate that these medicines exist in within cultural um like constructions right and like are not just like the only thing that people do but it's like part of of life ways you know and part of um relating to the land relating to the community that you're a part of relating to yourself as a changing woman Um, they come in different phases of a person's life they come with different sets of responsibilities that are bestowed on you and so it's just um, it's just really beautiful that um, some of us are like a few generations out and some of us are like many many generations out and so i just want to acknowledge um like all of my european sisters and relatives that like are many 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 generations out from their own indigenous ways of being um because there is a way that also belongs to you all and there's a way that um was also taken from you as well and so i just want to acknowledge like the ancestors of each and every one of us um and that um these ways of life belong to everyone and um I have access to and only know very little in compared to what others know and have access to um in these and in in the indigenous ways some indigenous ways particularly like the Mexica traditions um I know some and have learned some from other wisdom keepers and carriers. And I just do my best to stay really humble in my understanding and know that, um, to some of these traditions, I'm still an outsider. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that, yeah, what I'm sharing and, and what I'm sharing with you is just, yeah, what I've learned from other teachers and, um, and other elders, and I want to give a lot of reverence and thanks to my my teacher Star Lily, Sister Nova Birch, for initiating me into womb care. Um, my yeah, one of the abuelas that I know, Abuelita Sochi. um, My sister Liz from Getting to the Root. Um, I wanna acknowledge Brittany Jade from the original instruction school for really carrying so much beautiful knowledge from the jungle and um, from her heritage as well. And and there's so many, many others. My sister, Larissa, who's a, um, she does dansa, in the Azteca tradition. My sister Metzli, like there's just so many people that have poured into me great knowledge and um, have kind of built this like continuity for the way that I understand the sacred earth medicine. So, um, when it comes to postpartum mothers and even mothers um, close to birthing, I um, I'm very aware of um, peyote, masculine um, containing cactus, um, the, the the thornless um, the thornless cactus um, as a mother's medicine. It's a very joyful medicine, a very sweet medicine. And there are many origin stories of peyote. Um, Hikori is what some people call it in the Wiradika community. But um, that medicine, as I've come to know it in its origin story, was kind of uncovered um, by a postpartum mother and assisted her in continuing on a long voyage. And she's the one who carried it to her people. It saved her life in the desert. And um, I think that's just a beautiful and gives us a good understanding, too, because I think even among, in this language that we use, oh, indigenous communities, like, like there's just one or something and, um, or that it's like a ma- like, and <laughs> just like this uniform blanket of all these people, but it's like, there's just so much nuance and diversity and languages and customs and ways of dress and, 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 and worldviews. And it's just so important to recognize, like, it's not all, it's not all, um, agreeing in the same ways. And so Peyote as I know it, jicari, comes from Mexico, comes from Mexico, and um, has been part of a women's way of life and part of a mother's way of life for a long time. And not every culture sees women as carriers of this medicine, and not every indigenous culture sees women as carriers of medicine. Period. And so, I just want to acknowledge that, um, in my view and in my perspective, women do have and mothers do have a birthright and do have um, the like responsibility to also carry medicine and um i just want to acknowledge the medicine women in the world that um maybe remember that and that we are like valuable and have enough dignity and um that should be respected enough to be seen as medicine carriers and in, in our communities so um or at least a big part of the way that medicine gets carried. So, yeah, mescaline uh, peyote is seen as a medicine that can fortify and nutrify the placenta, and also help to encourage breast milk production, which is really incredible and beautiful. And so, um, the specific traditions and the pres- the specific ceremonies that are that take place um, to sit with peyote um, vary right across across tribes. And um, I what I want to share though, is what's really specific to so many gatherings and so many indigenous people and the way that they sit with these medicine is that um, they're usually done in groups. That's <laughs> like almost like it's so shared across so many different cultures. It would like make you consider how being in that kind of setting Um, is part of the way of of ensuring the benefit of medicine. So um, it's very rare that practitioners operate alone. And this is actually really unique to the West is that like there's one main character, like leader, facilitator, guide person, and like everyone kind of is um, like centering that being and that being has the healing for everyone. It's very rare and it's like very not common in this way. Um, Usually it's done with like multiple generations of people present and like children present. And also like um, the responsibilities of the caretaking of the space are shared among community members. And everyone has some kind of participation within it, even the very young children. So, um, you know, peyote is usually done in groups and um, is a very important part of like the healing rituals and can involve and like, Hold all people. And that is kind of the framework in which I sat in was that, you know, as a pregnant person, as a postpartum person, as a breastfeeding mom, I was just welcome to be in these spaces. And that is the kind of um feeling mothers deserve to have is like you belong in community, that there isn't this like, you know, now you're shunned forever because you just had a kid, like no, you're welcome. And so is the baby. And that's an important part of, of these traditions and cultures. And in Mashika um, traditions, we have in Mexica traditions, um, a very comprehensive level of, of care around the womb. Um, the womb, the matriz is like, you know, it's such an important part of the general well being of any human person. And um, paying attention to the life cycle of the womb, paying attention to the phases of the womb, and caretaking it through the ways mm-hmm. is like the the responsibility and the role of these traditional midwives in this culture and so um at every phase there is celebration at every phase there is the acknowledgement that this changing woman is changing and that each one deserves celebration and care and so we uh, you know a lot of us are aware that menarche is a thing and um that the celebration of the first blood is like an important step for all birthing people. And so, um, there, there is that. And sometimes it is possible. And in some traditions, even younger than this, that even children ingest psilocybin or peyote or ayahuasca, or have like their own, what's called like an abuela dos, or like an amount that feels appropriate for that age so that they can begin familiarizing themselves with like, not just the sensation, cause I think we're all really concerned about and want to like, wow, are they hallucinating? Are they, you know, having these full trips and freaking out and whatever, um, that not only are, are they getting in ways familiar with the sensation, but these children are now participating in the framework of community healing so that they know like what they should be expecting as an adult, what they will be seeing as they move deeper into their role in their community. So it's also like a way of including children into like the, the fabric of, of the psychedelic community. That is their home. That is their family. That is their tribe. That is their culture. So, um, you know, like moving through that first blood and into, you know, the, the motherhood portal is like very important to acknowledge that as a rite of passage. And, um, at all different phases of the trimesters, I feel like medicine um, feels very different and everyone feels very different at different trimesters. And um, some people choose to dose during their pregnancies and not, but what I, what I will say is that, you know, um, pregnancy is in itself a mind altering experience and a psychedelic experience and an altered state of consciousness. And so is the birth scene. So when we honor mothers, as they transition from, you know, a maiden to a mother, we often do that before the birth. And our culture does that by um, doing a baby shower, um, which is the giving of gifts, right? But what we also want to do for mothers is prepare them, hear their wishes, um, you know, to them and acknowledge that they will be going into an action that is more than just a physical one, that is um, quite psychosomatic, quite spiritual, quite um, a reach into another plane to like bring in a soul. And not only is the birth that experience, but also Conception is too. And so I just want to also give a shout out to Conception as An important part of our relationship with the divine as (laughs) mothers, because um, there's also an incredible opening that happens at that at that point in that moment. That um, so many of you know my my sisters that teach me Mayan cosmology, also the Aztecas as well, is like conception and intimacy is also a really important um, point of the way that we engage with our consciousness and like the way that um, we engage with the divine and sex and pleasure are important parts of calling in a soul and understanding um, our cervical intelligence and understanding the nature of our cycles and the nature of when it is time to plant a seed or when it is time to let go of a seed. Um, that is also like a very beautiful relationship that that birthing people and bleeding people and cycling people get to have and um we also want to acknowledge all of those tiny initiations of you know um not all births result, uh, not all pregnancies result in life birth and so i want to acknowledge like the stillborn and the miscarriages and the um, intentional pregnancy releases and um, abortions that, you know, are all very divine too and all very worthy of acknowledgement and, um, and repair and reparation and to be wrapped around and to be these women and birthing people welcomed in ceremony and also these ceremonies being part of how they heal and get well and feel right again so um you know acknowledging all of these interactions of the womb as as important as they are bleeding as important as it is you know um changing from a pregnant person into a mother requires that acknowledgement and all the cultures around the world honor and acknowledge that in their own way and um for me mushrooms are an important um weaver of the edges um they turn lines into circles for me they take like the edge of birth and the edge of death if they were two points on a line and brings them together to make this beautiful hoop like they kind of melt the that space in between them so that they can create a continuum so i i find that at these important transitional periods you know whether that's hormonally. You know, transitional, uh, psychosomatically transitional, or communally transitional, like you're moving from one role into another role, um, mushrooms can be applied. And so all of the motherhood blessings that I do include that as part of that tradition and ceremony. And some people call it a blessing way. A blessing way is very specific, it is like one of the many rituals that belong to the the Dene people the Navajos so we don't call them a blessing way we call them a motherhood blessing and they're becoming much more popular and I'm happy about that um, because mothers deserve to know who's going to be there and like what community of women and other people are they going to walk into on the other side of this experience and for me as a pregnant person having a relationship with mushrooms was paramount to preparing me for birth And that's, I tell a story in a lot of podcasts about, you know, my specific individual struggle that I was dealing with in pregnancy, and how a high dose mushroom experience in my third trimester, absolutely assisted me in neutralizing that pain, so that I didn't have to carry those fears, anxieties and pressures into the birth room. And I could simply birth without the chatter of my fear. And mothers deserve to have that too. Um, Mothers deserve to have, um, to be a hollow bone. And a lot of us are carrying and working through so much um, sensual assault trauma, ancestral trauma, like stories around how people give birth in our family lines. We come from a long line of cesarean, for example, or hard births or something like that. And all of that comes to play in the birth space and so if we are able to potentially work through those things during pregnancy or even before as a preventative even before we conceive even before we call the soul right as we prepare my teacher always my teacher sister nova always teaches me that if someone's hoping to conceive that they're planning nine months before they conceive right to prepare the body for that experience and so you know coming into it like that can be part of a person's preparation for birth is I I want to become neutral with all the things that scare me about birth so that I can just birth freely and without fear. And um, that can do a lot for what postpartum feels like. And according to the already 300 that we have received in the survey, like 67% of all the moms that surveyed they started their relationship with psilocybin during the postpartum period. And what that's telling us is the. it's just showing us that there's extreme pressure and, and discomfort during postpartum. And so I really just want to pray that although mushrooms can be such an important and helpful addition to someone's postpartum care, especially when there are other support systems there, like, um, there's community and there's rest and there's nourishing food and there's closing of the bones ceremonies and, um, set the closing, you know, telling the body that you did a good job and that you're done. And you, you can tell all that relaxing to go back and stop producing. And you can tell all those organs to come back to place. And, you know, you can do that beautiful, like you know, reassembling the body after being so open, you know, with all of those things, um, mushrooms can do and help us in incredible, incredible ways. And I venture to even say that even without all those supports, I think can bring and could possibly, and I've seen bring such benefit and peace to people's postpartum experiences.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I think the this whole conversation, and I just didn't want to stop. You were just in such flow. Um, there's this bigger question of not, you know, reminding people to get curious, not only with mothers and asking them about their experiences. I think you said storytelling, how important that is, uh, but even having curiosity for ourselves as women or as mothers to understand that it's not something broken wrong with us that there are so many contextual factors just you know in the um, medical system as well as in our culture as the way that we've you know segmented ourselves for, or segmented um, uh, women and mothers from from the rest of the culture that these and and then the very real jarring effect or trauma that can happen with transitions in life Mm -hmm. like there's we have to give emphasis or give um give credit to the power the impact that these can have on our psyches that these can have on our own development and that these can have on the development of of the children
1: you know there's a reason why there is this changing woman kind of archetype that there is um Tlatelcutli is a Diosa de la Tierra. She's like a mother of the earth, a goddess in the Azteca tradition. That's a toad. And toad, she, I think, is like the perfect archetype for us to understand the entheogenic mother. Is that um, as a toad, um, toads don't come out looking like toads, (laughs) right? (laughs) It takes them many iterations Mm -hmm. to become. That. And that is what we do all the time. And what I like, I'm really humbled by is just like these micro cycles in larger cycles that we all experience month after month after month, these transitions that are just actually so intrinsic to this kind of body that we're in um that the whole of the society is not actually like set up to support this much cycle and change and the understanding of um that transitional nature that we are and um it, we are like very awkwardly having to conform to this cycle that doesn't that's not quite set up with us in mind and a question that I always you know as you mentioned context right it's like the context of your home the context of the work that you do it does my room does um, my home reflect like the space that I feel like I can be in my full range of my cyclical nature inside of um, and I think that also really sets us up for how we set up our homes for like children is our home and our lives set up to um, let them blossom? in their own special and unique way because we have a lot of really special and unique beings coming in and that's not to say that we didn't have special and unique beings coming in (laughs) at all phases of human history they're all special and unique beings and like unfortunately um so rigidly like made to conform and so now we have more knowledge than we've ever had around you know uh the neurology of children understanding children like wanting to care for children in a way that's like trauma informed and acknowledges these things and i guess we can imagine these things are novel but they're they're really not even in in curanderismo like we have this idea around susto which is essentially trauma like when you see something scary happen you actually need to be tended to even for just looking at it you know, or if you fell off a building, like, you know, there's more than just the physical that you have to tend to, like, you have to tend to the memory, and the piece of yourself, the piece of yourself that's left in that experience. And so, you know, this isn't new shit. It's so cool, because the frameworks and the knowledge is, um, is very much present in folk and traditional medicine systems. And so I, um, I really just acknowledge the rich scientific legacy of indigenous people um, because all of these beautiful nuances that we're learning about in child psychology and the psychology of sensuality and sex and psychedelics were all um, pretty understood pretty understood. And so um you know the context of our culture is very important. Um questions around like what about having a period is inherently wrong or bad or makes me crazy? What is hysteria? Why was the first vibrator made? Um <laughs> how do we how how did obstetrics come to be? Um I did a really in-depth class called "Wombs of the Empire," and um, it was done with the organization formerly known as the Ancestor Project, uh, which is not really in any shape anymore. But I, um, I did a three-part series around just kind of primitive and prehistorical understandings of what the womb was. Uh, the second class was around the changing hands of power, like how did all of these perspectives shift and Then the third was like holistic and whole body and herbal ways of like kind of reclaiming all of those practices again. And um, it's to me like the richest and most interesting thing when talking about context is the context of history and the context of storytelling as as the foundation for what we believe about anything like the the cosmology for which we believe anything. and the cosmology that, you know, menstrual blood is toxic is a framework. It's a belief system that's rooted in no scientific evidence whatsoever and has actually largely been disproven, but is still routinely um, cited or used as justification for, you know, wanting to condemn women while they're bleeding or not include them in other um parts of life or you know and you wonder like where does that even come from where does that framework come from it comes from like the theory of the humors and aristotle and hippocrates the father of medicine have really interesting things to say about women's menstrual cycles and we still recite hippocratic oaths and like believe that they are you know the foundational high level understanding of what you know we needed to 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 lay as the foundation for Western medical health, but the Western medical health system is really kind of following a lineage of men that didn't know very much about the womb yeah. at all. And yeah. when kind of standing next to cultures like ancient Kemet that had manuals Ebers papyrus remedies for all kinds of gynecological issues and like really spent a lot of time caring for tending to birth and death and pleasure and sex and psychedelics and all these things we care about now you know um the Greeks really just kind of took what they liked and then just left the rest. And they also forgot really important principles like Ma'at. And, um, you know, when kind of considering ethics in the psychedelic space, um, I think Ma'at and the goddess that she is and the cosmology that, that Ma'at brings. And for me, I draw a relationship between Ma'at and white buffalo calf woman for sure. But I, I find that that framework of ethics is a lot of it's missing from our psychedelic community and also just um, the way that law and, you know, the legal system functions here in the United States. So, you know, understanding the way that um, the United States government has managed and worked with indigenous peoples really kind of tells us their ethical and moral compass is also <laughs> not a straight arrow like not clear (laughs) and thoughtful and concise and cares so you know like if I'm looking at like western medicine and I'm looking at the United States government which are like trying to get their hands into psychedelics I'm like y'all don't have a very good track record because the seeds of both of those industries are really rotten and they don't come from good roots so I um the reason why I always bring up just indigeneity and folk people and folk medicine and the plants themselves and the earth is um because the the evidence of balance, the evidence of harmony, the evidence of you know cycles and systems of care exist in nature and have been stewarded through oral tradition um, by indigenous people so I um, the reason I bring them up all the time is because that's kind of where like I I really I really wish more people listened in the psychedelic community, in the tantric community, in the yoga community, um to First Nations stewardship. Um, because we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um a lot of the principles are already laid out. So
0: and I love that. Yeah. And as we're wrapping up here, you know, to bring back this concept of community that you brought it, that you were talking about earlier, also helps to mitigate some of the harm that happens in the ceremonial cultures or the, you know, the the use of psychedelics in, in um, uh, facilitators, shamans, you know, those who are working in silos or working independently and without accountability or the eyes of a community to call out inappropriate behavior um so even just returning back to that model as a way to support the safety of all mm-hmm. of us here and the ethical use
1: yeah i think um and what i what i understand so much more than ever is people seeking healing are an at-risk population like they would be willing to give it all in for the promise of being well again and that makes them targets you know sensual assault survivors um yeah people people that are low income and feel like they don't have a lot of options um the elderly you know mothers that are like at their last straw and will like ask for nothing more than to just get well and have help and you know um there's a lot of at-risk populations that absolutely get um exploited by um bad actors in the space and Um, what I feel like those people really do deserve too, the people that are green is, um, you know, just a a baseline understanding for what to look for in a good practitioner and what to look for in someone who seems sus and to have a clear eye and a discernment for what what a green flag is and what a red flag is. And, um, you know, it's easier when we're able to see those things together And we need to have a culture of seeing something and saying something because it's like the silence and the ability for people to move from place to place. And, you know, um, I really want to acknowledge the people that have been harmed by facilitators of all kinds, not just psychedelic, but like massage therapists. Uh, OBGYNs like midwives um you know anyone in the caring profession even just regular therapists i feel like sometimes cause harm so you know um obviously i i absolutely want to acknowledge the lived experience of people and know that education is essential like and centering Centering this kind of education for the psychedelic community, for journeyers and for practitioners, um, the ethics of power and um, how to not misuse your power, how to keep a clear moral compass, like um, how not to culturally appropriate and all those things, you know, are, are getting worked through collectively, which is which is a beautiful thing, because I feel like the conversation around ethics and sensual harm in the psychedelic space is like the thing that a lot of people are talking about, just like we started talking about integration, you know, like eight years ago, and now everyone knows as a standard that integration is a very important thing. And so I just really pray that with these unfortunate experiences causing the community to have to function and act and adjust that, you know, intimate violence and power dynamics becomes as regular of a conversation, a part of training and a part of what we do on the day to day so that there is no stigma that there is no like um we know what to say to survivors that isn't re-traumatizing or triggering or gaslighting and stuff um, we we know how to spot um, we know how to spot a predator you know and we know how and we know what to do when we see them and how to protect our people from them and and hopefully i think on like a deeper level um, address that pain in that person that causes them to want to do harmful shit and, um, help bring like remedy to their soul too, because they are probably suffering very much as well. So, um, yeah, my, my friend Brittany Jade, um, and myself, um, are doing that very training, which I think is really awesome. It's called eco And, um, I think it's just a really important offering to the community because a lot of people asked during, you know, some of our collective actions, like, what do we do? What do we do next? How do we ensure more people don't get hurt? And, um, I think the best way to do that is through, is through education.
0: A hundred percent.
1: Yeah. And it's, and it's really beautiful to see Mm -hmm. when people are presented this information, how to be a good advocate, you know, what does the central nervous system do when you've been abused before? How, you know, this language in the new age community is like you attracted your abuse, you attracted your abuser and like how messed up it is to say something like that, Mm -hmm. because the truth of that is so clearly that you didn't attract your abuser. It's your abuser was attracted to you. Your abuser was looking at, you know, um, aspects of your personality that was um, exploitable, you know? And so um, we really need to move out of like blaming victims for their abuse and um, acknowledging um, the role that people play and um, in perpetuating harm and giving survivors the tools in order to get free from those kinds of patterns. Because truly, on the other side of that, which is what we're learning through Ego Central right now, is that yes, and like they're attracted to you. Yes. And there's something set up in my nervous system as a survivor, as someone who's experienced abuse before, that makes this situation feel very comfortable. Yes. Mm-hmm. Feel very like something that
0: I. It's familiar.
1: That I fall into and it's yeah. familiar to me. And so yeah. there's patterns of falling into that. And so, you know, I think that really can look like victim blaming that can look like, oh, well, you keep like getting these situations, So it must be you. And it's like, well, maybe if I hadn't had that experience when I was five years old, maybe I wouldn't feel so comfortable in these situations and think that this was my worth. And that this is what I deserve. So just also just, you know, and a a deep acknowledgement to like every survivor that maybe found themselves in situations that felt familiar over and over again. Um, You absolutely deserve ways to break cycles. And we do that through education and community and caring and tending to one another. And um, by insourcing a lot of skills and plants that can absolutely help and support us in creating good boundaries, protecting our energetic bodies and, um, and, and helping to restore confidence and value and harmony and, and our own worth. Like we have so much worth and, um, deserve to feel that worthiness in every step and in every breath that we take. And, um, I think the last thing that I just want to leave for just that piece around, yeah, survivorship and, um, teachers and guides and because everyone deserves to have a good teacher and guide and, I really do believe that healing doesn't have to come in hard ways and in challenging ways and in hurtful ways. But um, I found that a lot of people don't want to come forward about the things that have happened to them um, or don't want to come forward about the abusers that, you know, have harmed them or the healers that they've, you know, been harmed by, because that will mean that the things that they learned and the ways that they healed would become invalid and that all the work that they did. Um, would mean nothing and that everything that they learned if they reject their teacher they reject their teachings they reject what they learned that they would be um, inevitably like erasing all of this beautiful progress and all of these ways that we learned and the truth is we can learn really beautiful things from really challenging circumstances and we can have incredible healing experiences with people that are extremely harmful and so I just want to like remedy this idea that um you can't speak up against someone who's harmed you because it will inevitably negate everything that you ever learned or in all of the ways that you healed because it isn't true you can still have gained and amassed a ton of knowledge and wisdom and growth and beauty from really challenging situations and experiences so um just like a really challenging postpartum or just like a really challenging birth um we have really incredible capabilities to transform and transmute and um make right things and um, it is possible to do ma'at even far into the future and um so i just as far as sensual harm in the psychedelic space um And as far as the changing of hands of power in midwifery and the changing hands of power from folk um, and indigenous hands into the hands of pharmaceutical companies, it's truly not too late to rematriate.
0: That's beautiful. So, I have a guide that supports people in asking some of these questions, helping them to vet their practitioners, vet your shamans, vet who you want to be working with, and really emphasizing the the support in your body, you know, the intelligence of your body. How does your body respond to their answers? And, and I think you said something that's very important the concept of familiarity um, mm-hmm. can also make that difficult in discerning boundaries and discerning those feelings. So, having people emphasize the prep time before entering into a working relationship and really being with that process rather than rushing to a referral uh, of your mom's best friend's uncle (laughs) but really taking that time to feel into it for ourselves and using that um, innate um wisdom so how can how can people find you how can they work with you where can i know they can find you on instagram (laughs) thank you for bringing all
1: those beautiful and valuable resources together for people because they absolutely deserve them Um, And it is really interesting to watch psychedelics become people's professions and like their professional trip sitters. And just like what I've learned from indigenous communities is as soon as a person makes um, ceremony, their primary form of income is when things um, become very corruptible.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: So we just be really careful. I really actually like to work with people whose primary isn't just doing ceremony. I really most indigenous people don't do ceremony for money a and B, like they have so many other things that they do like craft or like um, other kinds of consulting and also other kinds of ways of community you know being in the community so that's also maybe something that never like gets added to these kinds of referral things but it's like is their entire career making money from trip sitting or is there another way that they exchange energy with other people? So um, something to also maybe consider is um, this therapy model and um, that not always, you know, uh, the underground is also a really beautiful place to find people. And um, there's a lot of beauty to be found in, in people that don't do this professionally, quote unquote.
0: And there's a lot of beautiful therapists who incorporate. There are some of these. Yeah, uh, some shout of these out to the therapists. Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> and, and I mean, what I will say is, like, in all in the communities of people that I am involved with a lot of us have other amazing skill sets like being therapists or massage workers or doulas, or, you know, they yeah. they do all of these other practices for which entheogens become like a helpful part of their healing right. framework. So just, mm-hmm. just know that, you know, um, entheogens don't always belong by themselves. Yes. That they are part of whole systems of care. Yes. And um, often those systems of care include things like singing or drumming, or movement, (laughs) and other things. So actually, what I like to look for in facilitators too is, do you know any songs? Do you know how to build a fire? Do you know these like foundational components of like working with the earth? Because essentially, mushrooms are relatives of the earth, and they come to us from nature. And so if this person doesn't like know anything about nature, how could you possibly know about the nature of mushrooms? So, those are other things I look for, but that is also colored by my worldview. So um, the way to find me and thank you so much again for the opportunity to share who I am and what I'm about and what I care for very much in our community. Um, I um, kind of like to claim that I'm not a professional in this space. Like I'm a human being who cares very much for the earth and feels and, 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 cares very much for my relatives and my more than human relatives and all my brothers and sisters in this space that like had to die to make sure that we still have access to this. And so, um, to my ancestors, I say ashe Omateo because I love them all so much. And, um, the way that people can find me, my work, um, the survey, the survey results, which I'm so excited to give, um, to the community is all going to be on mushroom.love And um, that's my website. And um, if you look up Mushroom on the internet, you'll find all my work. And it ranges very far and wide, Um, TikTok, Instagram. um, I'm very accessible. I love to have conversation and care for people. And so um, I do one-on-one care um, in person and uh, remotely as well. Um, and medicine work is one of the many things that I'm a part of. So, um, I do center, um, conscious contraception, supporting people through pregnancy release processes, care very much for my postpartum mommies, and also care about my LGBTQ community and my queer community and all birthing people and all bleeding people and, uh, my brothers, you know, that I love so much. So, um, Thank you for the opportunity to share myself and um, to speak on a platform that I think is trying to do good things. So thanks.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. Well, that was fun. Thanks for tuning in, lovers. And if you want to experience more ecstasy and sexual liberation, head over to sexlovepsychedelics.com and learn about how you can join me for any one of my online or live events. And while you're there, grab my free guide on sex and psychedelics. Remember, this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Please contact your healthcare provider and local law before pursuing any of the products or psychedelics discussed. And one final note here, I make this show specifically for you. If you're loving the show, then be sure to leave me a review in iTunes or Spotify to let me know. Happy to be here and happy to serve. I'll see you next time on Sex, Love, Psychedelics.